Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Fact, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is safety. So let's strap on our helmets and dive right in with fact number one. The first crash test dummy was a human. Merriam-Webster defines a crash test dummy as, quote-unquote, a life-size model of a person used in tests to see what happens to people when cars get into an accident. Collins, on the other hand, rather less helpfully defines a crash test dummy as a dummy used in crash tests. Great description there, Collins. But the first crash test dummy wasn't a dummy at all. He was a human, and his name was Lawrence Patrick. The first ever motor car related death in the UK was in 1896, when a pedestrian named Bridget Driscoll was run down by a car hurtling along at a madcap four miles an hour. The driver apparently hooted, but Driscoll's daughter said he didn't seem to know what he was doing and zigzagged towards them. There was no requirement for a driving competency test in 1896. Literally anyone could get behind the wheel, and this driver had only been doing so for three weeks. It wouldn't be until 39 years later, in 1935, when Britain introduced a compulsory driving test. During the same period, things were just as sketchy over in the US. There were no traffic signs, junction markings, brake lights, driving tests, or speed limits. So not surprisingly, accidents were frequent and often fatal for car occupants and pedestrians alike. In 1917, there were 4,000 car accidents in Detroit alone. Cars themselves were death traps. The hugely popular Model T had the fuel tank under the seat and a plate glass windscreen. Henry Ford famously refused to add front brakes to his cars to keep the costs down. 
By the 1930s, car companies realised it might be a good idea to test what happens to humans when a ton of metal smashes into them. So they could perhaps consider reducing lawsuits, <clears throat> I mean fatalities. The first person to kick this off was Wayne State University researcher Lawrence Patrick. He wanted to test the effective forces on the human body. So he simply tested them on himself, including taking a hit from a 22 pound pendulum to the chest. He went on to volunteer for more than 400 crash test simulations during his career and can legitimately take the title of the first crash test dummy, who wasn't actually a dummy, but a human being. Thankfully, he did draw the line at hurling himself down an elevator shaft to observe the effects. Instead, he used a dead body and thus was born cadaver crash testing which were considerably less fun than you might think. Before the test began, he had to manually loosen the corpse's joints, replace its brain with gelatin, and screw mount accelerometers to the skull. It was like Blue Peter, but with dead bodies. Cadavers were hard to come by then. It might have been even harder if people had known their bodies would end up with jelly for brains and a Teletubby-style headpiece. But shockingly, the car industry kept pretty quiet about these inconsequential details. But even at the height of cadaver testing in the 1960s, the average number that were available for car tests was only one per month. So researchers had to revert to using live people. The most famous instance of human crash testing was at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico in 1954, when US Air Force physician John Stapp was strapped upright to a rocket sled and blasted 3,000 feet across the desert in a matter of seconds before coming to an abrupt stop, during which time he withstood 22 Gs and achieved a land speed of 632 miles per hour, which is literally faster than a bullet. He was shaken and bruised, and his eyes temporarily filled with blood from broken capillaries, which sounds painful, but that didn't put him off doing it again. Another 27 times, in fact. As you can imagine, apart from Mr. Stapp, who obviously had a death wish, not many people were willing to step up to become human test dummies, and many of the planned tests were simply too lethal for humans. They started to use anaesthetized pigs. Other animals such as dogs and bears were also used. This carried on for decades, until increasing pressure from animal rights groups brought it to an end in 1993. Meanwhile, beginning in 1949, the US Air Force created the first crash test humanoid. Called Sierra Sam, it was the first weighted dummy, designed to represent an average man. In 1976, a team at General Motors, led by one of Lawrence Patrick's students, created a standardized crash test dummy, the prototype for the same model that's still used today. At 171 pounds and 5 foot 9 inches tall, it was the height and weight 
of an entirely average man. Crash test dummies might look androgynous, but they are actually distinctly male. Women are 17% more likely to die in car crashes when seated in the front and wearing a seatbelt, and 73% more likely to be badly injured. Yet, there are few female crash test dummies, and they were a long time coming. Regulators first requested a female dummy in 1980. A group of automakers petitioned for one in 1996, but it wasn't until 2003 that the US Traffic Safety Administration introduced what they called a female dummy. In actuality, it was just a scaled-down version of a male dummy that matches the smallest 5% of women. It doesn't account for the fact that a woman's body composition and proportions are different to men's, and conveniently for testers, the dummy doubled as a 12 to 13 year old child. <laughs> no expense spared there, eh? Today, there are still live humans involved in crash testing. Rusty Haight, for instance, has done more than 900 crash tests to date and holds the Guinness World Record for most human subject crash tests. He says that humans are better crash test subjects in low or medium speed crashes. They're also far better at answering questions on Reddit. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Next up, Moment from History. Where each week we look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, we go back to the 19th of September, 1961, when the first documented UFO abduction occurred. Around midnight on the 19th of September 1961, Barney and Betty Hill were driving home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire from Canada in their Chevy Bel Air through a desolate forested area of the White Mountains when they spotted a bright star-like object in the sky heading north. It appeared to be wingless, cigar-shaped and had flashing lights. What followed is the first apparent, documented, and feasibly legitimate UFO abduction story in history. As they continued south, it turned and followed them. Some hours later, deep into the night, they claim they saw the UFO hovering silently a hundred feet above a field. Closer up, it was airliner-sized, disc-shaped, with a band of light halfway around its rim and fins at either side. Through his binoculars, Barney saw roughly ten figures watching him through its windows. They were humanoid, 
wore shiny black uniforms and, he said, moved with a cold, emotionless precision. Barney later recalled who he called the leader's eyes burning into his brain and a voice compelling him to come closer whilst a long ladder descended from the UFO. The sketch he later produced of this apparent leader had enormous slanted eyes, a peaked cap and a scarf over one shoulder. Well, I must say, those alien folks sound very debonair. Barney eventually managed to break free of this otherworldly attraction and he sped off down the highway. Then things got weird. Well, they're already bloody weird. They'd just seen a UFO full of aliens dressed like fashion models. But things got weirder because they inexplicably lost two hours of time. A series of beeping noises were heard and the car vibrated. Then, for the next 30 miles, the hills couldn't recall a single thing that happened. Not even driving, until another set of beeps were heard 30 miles further south, at which point their recollection of the event continued. Once home, they realised Betty's dress was inexplicably torn, Barney's shoe was scraped, the binocular strap was broken, and Barney had a strange urge to check his genitals. I'm not sure if that was anything to do with the whole UFO encounter business, or just because, well, he's a man. And we do tend to get a bit nervous about our genitals from time to time. Anyway, Betty immediately called her sister. She also lodged a report with the Air Force. And on the 26th of September, she wrote to the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, a civilian UFO research group. That letter found its way to a member, Walter Webb, who on the 19th of October interviewed the couple. He didn't doubt their truthfulness, but he doubted the craft was extraterrestrial. That must be a bit of a put down when even someone from a UFO investigation group thinks you're talking rubbish about your UFO abduction. About a fortnight after the sighting, Betty had a series of vivid dreams in which she and Barney were abducted by a crew of five-foot-tallish aliens in uniforms who conducted experiments on them on board the ship. That might have been the end of it, but then Barney began suffering panic attacks and various other symptoms, including strange warts on his testicles. Oh, so he had every right to check them then. And Betty continued to have abduction dreams. In 1965, the story was leaked to the Boston Traveller, possibly via a talk Barney gave to a church group, and it hit the headlines. It instantly became huge. It made the cover of magazines, was the subject of a best-selling book, and was turned into a low-budget TV movie, The UFO Incident, in 1975. The Hills were credible witnesses. They were a respectable, hard-working, middle-aged couple. They hadn't sought publicity, it had come and found them. But the logical explanation for Barney and Betty's Hill's encounter of the third kind is that it was a combination of sleep deprivation, stress and susceptibility. They'd been driving for hours that night. The moon and Jupiter were close together and low in the sky. They were under stress, especially Barney who was black and was trying to cope with the social pressures of being in an interracial couple at a time when many states still outlawed interracial marriage. And apparently they'd had a rather unpleasant interaction, 
with a waitress earlier that night. Not to mention Bessie was already interested in UFOs, which meant she was very motivated to see one. And coincidentally, their supposed abduction happened within a week of a TV episode that featured aliens very much like the ones they supposedly saw. I guess we'll never know what Barney and Betty Hill saw that night, but it will go down in history as the first documented UFO abduction of its kind. Now we'll take a quick break and soon we'll be back with fact number two. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Fact number two. Airplane seatbelts aren't there to save you in a plane crash. Seriously, they're not. If the plane crashes, your seatbelt might help save you, but that's not its primary purpose. Now, before I get into the details, I'm just going to dispel a couple of urban myths right out the gate. No, plane seatbelts haven't been installed to keep your corpse in place to make matching your dental records easier nor to make it easier to clean up after a crash. And no, the reason you're told to adopt the brace position isn't so you snap your neck on impact to save you from pain and suffering. You might think some corporations are just damn right evil, but they do generally want to keep their customers alive. After all, dead customers don't make good customers. The fact is, planes are statistically very safe. Your odds of being killed in a plane crash are quoted as 1 in 11 million, or too rare to even calculate, depending on who you ask. To put that into perspective, even at the more pessimistic estimate, you're roughly a thousand times less likely to die in a plane crash than you are to end up in ER from a pogo stick related injury which has a risk factor of 1 in 115,000. Do you hear that, all you millions of pogo stick enthusiasts out there? You bloody daredevils! In 2017, not a single person was killed during a commercial flight anywhere in the world. Even though the aviation industry hasn't kept a clean sheet since, crashes are still incredibly rare. This means that most safety measures on a plane are nothing to do with crashes at all. Since there's such an improbably small chance of a crash, all the safety measures are actually there to reduce injuries from all the other non-crashy things that can happen to you aboard a plane. And to explain what I'm talking about, take cars. Car safety is the complete opposite to plane safety because car safety is all about crashes, because the risk of collisions is considerably higher on the roads than it is in the sky. Seatbelts, airbags, braking systems, etc. are all designed to reduce injuries in the event of a crash. 
A three-point seatbelt makes a significant difference to your likelihood of escaping from a crash unscathed. But inside the passenger cabin of a plane, a three-point seatbelt would certainly secure you in place, but it would come with a cost, both financial and in terms of a plane's flightworthiness. The additional weight from having to reinforce the seats to accommodate more complex seatbelts would make the plane much heavier, potentially too heavy to fly, and it would make the seats more rigid, and therefore far more hazardous to smash your skull into at speed during takeoff, landing, and turbulence. And given how close the passengers in a plane are to the seat in front of them, certainly in economy, which, let's face it, is all most of us get to see, a seatbelt isn't what's going to save you. No, the key to survival in a plane crash situation is to adopt the brace position. And it really can be the difference between life and death. For instance, the sole survivor of a small aircraft crash in 1979 was a 16-year-old boy who happened to wake up, saw trees through the window, and suddenly adopted the brace position. The safety report noted that, although his seat along with most others separated upon impact, he suffered only a fractured leg and wrist and a scalp wound. Everyone else on board perished. And this is backed up by numerous other similar examples. So, what is your seatbelt for and all the other safety equipment aboard planes? Well, because crashes are so unlikely, the vast majority of injuries during flights are caused by turbulence. A plane's seatbelt's primary function is to stop you from hitting your head on the cabin ceiling. Or, more accurately, to stop the cabin ceiling from crashing into your head. This is because when you're hurtling along at 600 miles an hour at 30,000 feet, if the plane suddenly drops 20 feet due to turbulence, your body will try to keep going in a straight line at your previous altitude, which means the cabin roof is going to come down hard on your head. That's obviously not a desirable outcome. The captain has turned on the seatbelt light. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts. Thank you. So, you have a simple lap belt, which does a very effective job at keeping you secure and at the same altitude as the plane when your body tries its best to part company with your seat in a vertical direction. The cabin crew suffer the most from turbulence-related injuries. Not surprisingly, as they're most likely to be on their feet. For passengers, the risk of an injury from turbulence drops to almost zero if you're wearing your lap belt correctly. So yeah, next time your seatbelt light comes on, you are best to buckle up. Fact number three. 75% of people think your self-driving car should kill you and your passengers before it kills a pedestrian. Imagine you're an autonomous car driving along a narrow mountain road. You round a corner to find a group of pedestrians ahead. Either you plough into them, killing them all, or you swerve over a precipice where you will be smashed to smithereens and your occupants will die. So what should said car do? Should it save the passengers or the pedestrians? What do you think? Well, 
75% of people, when asked that very same question, chose to kill the car's occupants instead of the pedestrians. And it makes sense, the pedestrians aren't responsible for the car, whilst at least one of the occupants is. So most of us make the choice to prioritise saving the pedestrians. This is a variation of the trolley problem, and it can quickly get complicated. The trolley problem is neatly illustrated in the TV show The Good Place, but in case you haven't come across it, it's a philosophical dilemma used to discuss ethics. You're driving a trolley or tram car along a track. Ahead of you is a set of points which you control. If you stay on the main track, you will run into and kill five workers who are standing on the track and unaware of your approach. You can divert onto another track, but in doing so, you'll run down and kill a different person. So, should you switch tracks and kill the one person, or do nothing and kill five? The obvious answer is to change track and sacrifice one life to save five. But if you change the scenario to one where you are, say, a doctor with five patients who need organs, would you kill one healthy person to harvest their organs for the five ill patients? I should certainly hope not. That goes completely against the Hippocratic Oath, and is obviously just murder. So what's the difference between that and choosing to kill the one person on the trolley track? In terms of our self-driving car scenario, what if it's just one pedestrian and they step into the road without looking? Does that change who's responsible and therefore who should die? Or what if the car contains children? Does that make a difference? Is it actually possible for someone to commit murder by stepping in front of a self-driving car that's designed to protect pedestrians at all costs, thus knowingly causing that car to swerve into a ravine and killing the car's occupants? These very ethical questions will need to be considered by autonomous car developers, such as Tesla, General Motors, BMW and Apple. But there's a more practical point for car manufacturers too. Would a customer get into a car, which he had no control over beyond telling it a destination, if he knew it would kill him in order to save someone else? At the moment, a meagre 11% of Americans say they want self-driving technology, compared to around 50% valuing features such as blind spot monitoring and rear view cameras which just help them to be better drivers themselves. And sure enough, a suspicion that your car might throw you under the bus, so to speak, isn't going to make self-driving technology any more popular. Because it's all very well theoretically saying that you're one of the 75% who would choose to save a pedestrian over the occupants of a self-driving car. But if you're in that self-driving car, you might quickly change your mind. For now, all these questions are a long way off being answered, if we can even answer them at all. But they're certainly extremely interesting to ponder upon. And that was Random Interesting Facts. Thank you for listening, and I'd absolutely love to hear your comments and suggestions for future episodes. And also be sure to like, review, 
and subscribe. Please do leave a comment if you've learned something new from this episode. And if you have your very own random interesting fact that you're just bursting to share with me, then tweet it using the hashtag RiffPodcast. That's R-I-F podcast. And thanks again for listening. <laughs>